Hello, welcome to another edition of my podcast, Richard Abraham's Unlock Your Mental Health, sponsored by Elmhurst, the trusted name in home improvements. I had to get that in. Uh, (laughs) Welcome, Brian Dean on the couch. Brian, it's lovely to see you. And you, Richard. um, We've known each other a long time now, haven't we? It's... uh... A lot of people probably won't realise, but think, what are these two random guys doing here? But we used to go to school together. Well, to be honest, Brian, this is the first thing I was going to say to you, was that um, after a 40-year gap, um, I randomly bumped into you on Street Lane. I think it was just after COVID. And you not only shook my hand, but we embraced. And that meant a lot to me. What did it mean to you? <laughs> Not a lot. <laughs> right, no. end of podcast. No, no, no. I mean, look, you, you know, like you say, I, I kind of a lot of things happened to me in the last three or four years, and and I've reflected on a lot of things. You know, I lost my mum, which was horrific. Um, you know, I remember my uncle saying to me, you know, it's bad when you lose your dad, but when you lose your mum, it's on a different level. And and I live with that every day. You know, every day, you know that person or those people who you know would love you unconditionally they're no longer there and they're you know those were the people who you'd look at and think right who do I go for with this and all of a sudden you you go into a room and it's a dark room and you've got to find your way and um, you also kind of think well I'm that person now and my my wife's the other person who my kids are going to be looking at like that and it, it kind of stiffens you up and it you know, I, I'm I'm quite. A, I try to be quite a, you know, an immature person because I think, you know, growing up, I've tried to be the same person, but it does kind of sharpen your focus, really. Yeah, let's go back to um, Allerton Grange. For me, um, it was a tough environment. Um, going from a small. Uh, Jewish middle school, which I knew everybody. I was teacher's pet. I enjoyed going to school. And then going into this, I wasn't clever enough to pass the uh, Leeds Grammar School exam, so I had to go to Allerton Grange. And that was a a situation going in there uh, with a lot of tough people at that school and really starting again and building relationships. Now, whilst you were running onto the football pitch uh, off Street Lane there, at the start of your career into professional football, I was running off the pitch with a doctor's note from my mother because uh, not many Jewish boys like contact sports. But actually what I wanted to do, Brian, is I represented the school in the National Schools Public Speaking Competition because I had the passion to stand up and talk. And believe it or not, not many people could talk at Allerton Grange as it was. But I uh, I won that. 15,000 people, I think, um, uh, competed. But I had the desire to 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 do that. Did you feel going onto that pitch, Brian, at school, that you had a vision that you were going to be Brian Dean going out at Leeds United and Sheffield United and for England? Did you have that vision that you were going to be a success? I think you have to. I think that if you don't have that that dream, that passion, if you don't want to have that drive for yourself, then it's not going to happen. And you know, the, the journey for me started when I was maybe about 10. Um, and I started playing for the school and I went on trial, went on trials at a local club called Yorkshire Amateurs. And I remember myself and my uh, friend, Michael Phillips, we used to go and catch the bus there. 
And we went on this trial. There was about 100 kids there. We were the only two black kids there. We caught the bus from the clock cinema on Roundy Road up to John Smeaton School. Got up there. And um, we went there with this dream. You know, we wanted to play football. This was an opportunity to get in a team. Um, and it was... To be honest, it was amazing. But what it what it also did was it made me realize that I what I like to term a strategic intelligence is a term where I knew that I had to get from A to B, and and how was I going to springboard from one step to the next? Um, and why I say that is because there was a lot of talent where I come from in Leeds Chapel Town, but myself and Michael had the actual get up and go to go and think, right, okay, well, what's the best way of getting noticed playing your football? You have to go outside of your community. Um, we were the only two black kids. That was going to make us stand out as well. And um, it was a way of getting into the right clubs, if that's what I mean, you know, Leeds City Boys um, and, and so on and so on, you know, from, from Leeds City Boys, you then start getting scouts to watch the games. You then get invited for trials. So it was a process. So what you're saying is that there were other boys that were probably potentially as good as you, if not better, but you had that sort of extra desire or passion or even you could call it like it was a business-like sort of proposition to move yourself forward and better yourself. It was a drive, but I, I'm, I'm also lucky in that I had... Um, you know, my, my brothers and sisters were all quite ambitious. Um, my brother, Tony, you know, he was a keen footballer, but he left to join the Navy. Um, he's like, basically was my mentor as well. Uh, my sisters moved away. One of my sisters moved away to go to university. Um, and I think in some respects, you know, I used to look up to Tony. So Tony got into the um, the Navy team, you know, he was playing locally and, and and he was the one who, when we were at home playing in the wreck, he'd be like, you got to practice with your right foot, you got to practice with your left foot. And that was an obsession for me because I used to kick a ball with a tennis ball all the time, left foot, right foot, left foot. So play a game called Wally and it's basically, I was playing my left foot against my right yeah, foot. Yeah, yeah. But um, it was an obsession, but um, it's also something that I felt I was born to do. Um, and, and as a result of that, you know, it, I was going to give it my full attention. Um, going to school was always something that my, my parents were great because what they would do is they would support me with getting me boots and so on because they were working. It was difficult for them to take me to games and so on. Sometimes my brother, Stephen, who was around, he would take me to games, um, and, and to training, but a lot of the onus was on myself, you know, and, and I think when it's on yourself, it, it's up to you to decide, is this something you want to do? It's about discipline. It's about having that resilience. It's about ignoring some of the peer pressures that you get as a young kid. Oh, come and play on such a, no, I'm going to train now. I'm, yeah, I'm preparing myself. And these are all kind of disciplines that, you know, they become sort of like part of your DNA, as, as you're growing up and it can be applied to anything. Mm. So the resilience that you gain in there, you never lose it. You know, it's, mm. it, I always think that if you go into a situation, you go through something, you might not always get the result that you want, but you will have learned from it and you become a stronger person. Staying on that theme, um, 
there must be some sort of analogy between, say, running a business and being a professional footballer. And the point I'm making is that sometimes, Brian, you wake up, or I do, and I'm on it big time. My mind's focused. I'm, I can achieve so much yeah. uh, with the team at work. We can get through stuff. I said, I've had a good day. This is a good day. Some days, you're just not on it for whatever reason. Um, and just can't put your finger on it. It was just like hard work. Is it the same or was it the same when you were going onto the pitch? Did you have bad days and good days, Brian? Absolutely. Um, and it can be the loneliest place. You know, the, the higher you rise, the lonelier it gets. Um, and 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 it. this is where the kind of, the, the lessons that I learned, you know, the resilience, the, the discipline and everything, that's where everything kicks in, that those instincts kind of help to bore you. Um, so yeah, there, there were times where, you know, like when I came to Leeds, for example, um, there were times where in my first season where where it was it was tough. I was I, I struggled to adapt to how the team was playing. You know, I'd been used to um, getting the ball quickly, running at people, running past people, and then all of a sudden we played a different style of football, and I was no longer the first person who you know the team was looking towards, and and I struggled. I was I was wandering around at times, trying to wonder when I would get a pass when I was going to get an opportunity. Sometimes I was in the wrong places. Um, and I remember there were times where I had everything or it seemed like I had everything. I had the, I had a 500 SL, which I treated myself to because I'd already earned that from playing for England. And, you know, I loved cars at that stage. Um, came to Leeds, I didn't even take it in because I didn't want to offend anybody and get anybody to think, well, this guy's showing off or whatever it was. This was my weekend thing. Um, but there were times where I drove in to Ellen Road because we used to train at Fullerton Park. And just as I was getting to the gates, I did feel like turning around, going back home because I was struggling, you know, like, you know, I wasn't always... You're struggling mentally? Uh, well, you struggle mentally because you're struggling on the pitch. And I was struggling on the pitch because I wasn't scoring and... If you're a centre forward, it is a real that the 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 mindset is like that. You know, it's it's like a room that's that big, and um, you know because you start looking and thinking, right, okay, how many shots have I had? Have I had? A, you know, was that a chance? Should I have scored? When that's when your confidence starts crumbling, it then impacts on everything else. It impacts on the people around you. Um, you then start wondering you know you start doubting yourself and so what i'm trying to say to you is driving in i was all right when i got in my car or sometimes i wasn't even all right getting into my car but by the time i got to ellen road to to go to training and meet my um teammates there were times where i, I thought how am i going to get through this and i had this massive knot in my stomach do you think that the negative thoughts they were overwhelming were basically spiraling so much that you couldn't give it your best shot physically as it were and do you think that was a lot of the problem was that causing you the problem well i think what it does is whichever way you look at it your mind plays tricks on you 
and it, and it was, you know, it was creating blockers for me because I was never a bad player, but in my mind I was terrible. And so I would literally go onto the pitch and think, right, okay, get, get a good touch. What are we doing today in training? And you look for one small thing to turn the negative into a positive, and then you try and use that to build on. And, and I suppose what you're saying is, is it similar in business? I think it is. Um, football is, it's a lot different in a way that whenever I'm talking about these subjects and, and the differences, football is about crisis management. So if you think about <clears throat> how often you have to get results in football, it's like every week, it's every three, four days, right? In business, it might be that you have your quarterly results and you, you adapt accordingly. But there's so much going on in that cycle in football. Um, you know, we, we talk about the, an iceberg, you know, you, you see four-fifths of an iceberg is under the surface. And so all that people see is they see you in your kit looking good, you know, ready for a game. But the whole week might have been a whole load of stuff that you have to get over to be mm. above the surface. Um, and, you know, one of the exercises that I, I do sometimes and I have done with people is say, right, you know, what is going to make you float? You know, what mm. do you need to deal with mm. to clear the decks so that what people see is, you know, this kind of floaty thing on the top. And and I think business is very much the same. I think what you're what you're talking about is perhaps what I had, which was, you know, self-doubt. Mm. Um, you know, kind of you think imposter syndrome. Um, you know, you're a, you're a successful person yourself. I was successful, but you still have these doubts inside staying, you know, is this really me? I remember when I was at Sheffield United and I was a 20, 21 year old guy scoring a hat trick in front of the cop. And I'm looking up into the cop with my arms raised and I'm thinking, well, is this me really? I'm looking down at people. People are kind of like shouting and cheering. I'm thinking it's like an out of body experience. And it's like, is that really me? Am I, am I really here with all these people? Is the focus on me? And, and it, and it's, you know, if you stop to think about it too much, it, it can mm. manifest itself as a, as an issue. Mm. You did, know, did, did you love that Brian when you're, you're a sort of in the crowd and people shouting Dino, did, you know, did you embrace it or were you, how did, how did yeah. that make you feel? So, so, from from the time I was a kid, six, seven, eight, whatever, I dreamed of becoming a footballer and I used to get Roy the Rovers and I used to look at the sign please page at the back and I used <laughs> to think that's going to be me one day. And so I always had that ambition to, you know, it was always something that I wanted to do. You know, I, I, I watched any time I could watch football on telly I was or I was playing down in the wreck. You know, for me it was... It was what I was born to do. Um, but again, you know, even when you get to that position, there is a load of maintenance. Um, and that's why, you know, what we're talking about today is 
there'll be a lot of people out there who have a lot of, they'll be thinking, yeah, I recognise that. But there's a lot of maintenance. And not only that, it's also good to admit that there is a lot of go, a lot of things going on because it's only when you admit something that you can address that issue. And again, back to the analogy with business, I think running a business can actually drive you mad because there are so many things coming at you uh, and so many things you've got to look after and so many people you've got to look after. And it's like there's so much going on that yeah. you can literally be driven mad uh, to the extent that you have to be of a certain calibre to run a business. And there are some friends of mine who would admit, I'm happy to be number two. I couldn't run a business because I just couldn't handle it. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the pressure for you, Ran, is that, you know, football was your business uh, and you had to get it over the line, pardon yeah. the pun. Uh, and if you couldn't achieve, then there were so many other added pressures. For me, it was a case of there is, I have to achieve. Mm. There was no other alternative in my mind. You know, I broke my leg when I was 16, broke my tib fib, mm. dislocated my ankle. And even then I was like, it's not going to stop me. You know, the, the background to how I broke my leg was horrific. And it was while I was playing football, but while I was getting carried off the pitch at the time, I was so determined that, you know, it wasn't going to stop me. And so, I kind of, I became quite, I don't know, it's almost like somebody else was managing everything for me, you know, and I, I just had to focus on getting where I needed to, you know. I could Maybe, you know, it's not a bad thing to be absent-minded. I think at times I was absent-minded, but that helps, you know. It's like dusting things off without realising the full impact of, of what's going mm -hmm. on. Um, you know, so you know it was it seemed as though it was something that i was born to do and i had a good support network around very fortunate the way my parents were with me um you know because they had it hard you know i think about when i think about what my parents had to do i couldn't have survived if i'd have gone through what they went through mm. um and it, and it's testament to them in in many ways that mm. In my mind, I keep trying to develop myself because I'm representing them as well every day. Mm. You know, it's like, you know, I I I I honor them, you know, with everything that I try to achieve every day. Um, and and I think when you're like that, it, you want to be a good person. Sure. Uh, I I find it hard sometimes, but look, you know, when I when I think of people doing bad things, evil things, I have a problem. Because I think, well, I'm wired like that. How could you do that? But everybody has to put food on the table. Mm. And so it would be wrong for me to kind of say too much on yeah. that subject. Yeah. You know? There weren't many people at school I liked. You were you were one of them anyway, I think. Maybe that's why I embraced very you. Nice of you to say. <laughs> so so let's talk about um home, because I've yeah. I've seen you in your home environment. Um what does home mean for you? It means everything. Uh, I mean, you know, my, my dad came to um, this country on the Windrush. Mm. And, um, you know, the West Indian community had a lot of problems settling in. 
you know, first generation West Indian people were fantastic people. Um, you know, when I when I go back into the community and, you know, I go to the church and I see all these lovely old ladies or did do, you know, and I think that's the generation that came up in the early 60s. I think um, wonderful. And they were hardworking people, you know, really hardworking people. And, and my dad was a kind of person who said, look, at what I do, he used to work at Yorkshire Imperial Metals and... Um, he was like, he wanted to pay off his house, he wanted to own his own house so that nobody could come into his house and tell him what to do. And if you think about what I'm talking about uh, in, t in terms of, you know, the struggles, you know, for me, that's something that's been imprinted on my brain. You know, having your own space where it is yours is very important in my life and, and fighting for that is very important. So... I'll never be as good as passing on that message to my children and my wife, but, you know, I, I can try my best given the fact that I've had a better life than my parents have, you know, and, and try to make it a balanced situation. But, you know, I, I love, I love good things, but I also realize that there's a level of importance that, you know, you shouldn't go beyond. You shouldn't be obsessed and and I've seen people who are obsessed with having the best house and, and thinking that they, you know, they're better than anybody else. It's really funny actually, because yesterday <laughs> yesterday I was in the garden and um I, I my neighbour I, I I looked over the wall into the neighbour's back garden and I thought, wow. I looked and it was the grass was manicured beautifully you know everything the cushions it was it could have been anywhere it could have been in my bay or anything and then i look back at mine and i thought of those weeds died yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so but it but it's nice because mm. even when i cut my grass I, I you know i've got a you know i've got a lovely setup it's like i look at it and i think that that's an achievement for me just to have a a, a, a um a, a nice garden space and and i think one of the reasons why I've always been quite humble and, you know, I've had to manage myself, you know, because I don't want to get carried away with what I did as a footballer. Um, it's, but I'm still competitive. So it, it's nice to want to achieve nice things for the people around you. But um, it's also important to, to make sure that you're comfortable mm. in yourself, mm. you know, and that, you know, you get time to enjoy things. And I think now at 55, I, I'm kind of, I know that I don't have to, I don't want to chase certain things anymore. Mm -hmm. I think when you're in your twenties and your thirties, you become obsessed with material mm -hmm. things and, you know, you, you want to be on top. I think at 40 and 50, late forties and 50 you become, you want to just be comfortable in yourself and mm -hmm. you want to be happy and, and happiness doesn't mean having a, a, a you know, the, the latest car or, you know, it just means being content mm. with what you have and, and looking after your health really and, and, and try to smile. You know, I that's that's the thing with me. I mean, I, I had a lot of issues for the last 10 years that I, I'm not going to go into, but I've had to manage that situation and it's been, you know, in, in many ways now I find things to emancipate myself with. 
um, with my hobbies, mm. which, you know, my hobbies are, you know, people might look at me and they might think, you know, whether I get dressed up or they might think, well, you got a sophisticated, I haven't really. I've just got a simple life. Mm. I, I like meeting nice people. I like learning from everybody. Um, and, and, and I'm happy with that, mm. you know, and, and, and I also enjoy sharing my experiences with people because it's no good just for me to hold on to no, it. No, no, no. I mean, it's very interesting that we had this discussion on the way down that same age, 55, <clears throat> same school year, obviously. And you get to a point that you just want peace. You don't want aggravation. You want a simple type of lifestyle. Um, you can't do with people driving you insane. Um, and we get tired and, yeah. you know, as a, a, we just want, you know, a, a reasonable, yeah. enjoyable life to smile. Yeah. Sorry, but I was going to ask yeah. you, so this is something on my mind, which I'm sure a lot of people would be interested in. The transition from being like a technically a celebrity i'm sure you know that's what i would class you as or a professional footballer in the limelight whether it be in uh, playing or management and suddenly virtually finishing with all that and all the media and everything else and shutting the door on it it's a bit like retiring basically how how do you cope with that transition and because suddenly you're sort of forgotten about um how how how, is, how did all that sort of how did you cope with integrating into sort of what I call normal life again? Well, it's never easy. You know, I I, I was a professional footballer for twenty one years, um, quite a high profile career, and um, when I finished, I remember the first year that we got to July. I remember my body was kind of like nudging me and saying, "Come on, it's pre season again." Mm. and and it's like no i've retired you know <laughs> so that was one thing then there's a mental side of mm. it not realizing that you're not going to get that rush of running onto the pitch anymore you're not going to be able to influence anything on the pitch anymore and it, and it was a little bit of a struggle for a while um i think that it, it was tough on my partner at the time mm. and and i didn't even consider it uh i knew that she was a good person but all of the thing it was like coming home and kicking the cat in many ways you know it was like well something was annoying me and you're the nearest person in the room so we'd have some quite heated mm. situations going on was it a, t a type of frustration it was because the transition wasn't easy because i what what people don't realize is is that and 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 there are, there are people who are very wealthy. They leave football, and they still don't understand what their purpose is next. And I don't think that the authorities around football do enough to help people transition. Um, you know, I think sometimes think people think money is a means to an end. Um, there's a lot of exploitation. There's a lot of grooming financial grooming that goes on out there when you've got a lot of money. Mm. You know, there's a lot of emotional blackmail mm. around people who want to get some money off you. You know, somebody's got a scheme and 
you know, I think if you find a, a footballer out there who hasn't been under the influence or has been put into these situations, he's a very lucky person. Mm. There are obviously some, but, you know, most footballers come from a working class background where, you know, if you put a, for example, if you give a, a kid at 20 years of age a contract worth a million pounds, they're not going to know what a million pounds is worth. And so easy come, easy go. What you have to do is get the right um, people in place to look after you. And they don't always come in the in the guises that they should do. You know, as a player, I remember trusting my agent and thinking, you know, this guy is on my side. And, and, and most people will tell you about, there aren't, a, there are there are some good agents out there. I do know some, and and usually those are the ones that have played the game, because they understand, and also it's their reputation moving forward. But coming out of the game, there wasn't much help in terms of, you know, what what are you going to do next? Mm-hmm. You know, everybody says, "Oh, do your badges." So I did my badges, became a manager, but th- there was a moment for me when I was managing, and I thought. Well, I think I was on my pro license, on my A license, and I was looking at all these coaches and some really interesting people there. I remember Nuno was there. Um, I remember there was some, you know, Gavin Strachan, who was on the same course, Neil Carsley. Um, We were all doing our badges together. And um, I remember thinking, well, there's only 92 clubs, you know, then you've got to think about who's going to work with you, who can you trust, you know, who can you get in front of your network. I mean, football is one of the, it's a great environment, but it's also one of the worst ones because you can't always get in the door. And a lot of people will say, well, why didn't, why did you go to um, Norway for your first job? And it's a simple answer. You know, I couldn't get in the door with some people, even though Brian Dean scored over 200 goals, 700 appearances. Nobody wanted to even give me an opportunity to come in the room and speak. And that's because you get a lot of people in those senior C-suite positions who think, what's it going to look like to have somebody like this guy, black guy, running our business? or being the, and, and I see it now, and I, I, I see how subtle that side of prejudice can be. I did some workshops with a, with a company that is a FTSE 250 company and employed 200, sorry, 25,000 people. So I did two workshops with their C-suite, and it was fascinating because in the room you had all of these people who had achieved all over the country. and um, But what they wanted to do was they were saying, right, okay, well, we've got good people who start in our business at a very young age. How can we understand the diverse cultural side of it to make sure that we can keep the best people in the building? So we, we did a, it was brilliant because what we did is I worked quite closely with their HR department. And what we did was we came up with something where we took some of my experiences and basically saw where there were parallels and where they could apply that knowledge 
to help them make decisions. So it was like, it was, in, in short, it was step into my shoes in that situation. You know, so they thought, right, okay, well, when I'm asking that question, I need to consider this because I never thought about that before. I'll give you a short example of it. So when we talked, to, we, were t we were talking about, um, you know, one of the subjects was around employability. And I, one of the things I said was, if you've got two people, you've got one person in, in, in over there who's an able-bodied man and the other person here is a, somebody who's got a disability, maybe working in a wheelchair, both start at nine o'clock in the morning. Um, think about the two of them, their journey to work, to get to work for nine o'clock. This guy's going to be able to get on the bus, you know, or on his bike, in his car, bang, you know, get there at 8.55. For this person here in the wheelchair to get to... 8.55 has had to negotiate ramps, has got to deal with people who are not really thinking about how they can help a person. And so by the time this person gets there, they're very frustrated, they might be upset. They've still got to do the same job. So how does an employer create a level playing field? And that's what we were talking about, creating level playing fields. Now, some people might think that's really interesting. But people look at me as a footballer. So I would never usually get the opportunity to talk to people about my experiences and to let them understand that there is a leader in there. You know, so people just make, uh, they'll just have a perception about somebody like me. And we do that a lot. We, we think about, oh, well, we can pigeonhole him he won't have anything. And and it that's the frustrating side for me because what I've realised now is that I've done a lot of leadership management. I went abroad, I managed abroad, I had to bring my A game. And what I've come to realise is there are a lot of parallels in business because I did have to deal with that. I had to manage up, I had to manage across and I had to manage down. But I also realised that I'm more than well equipped to be in a business situation, but I'll never get those opportunities, even as a consultant, you know, because somebody on the other side will see it as a threat. And, it, and, and I came across as a threat when I came back into the country and I was just helping out at one of my clubs. There were coaches there who thought, we don't want him here because he represents a threat to us. And so you have to kind of manage your own mm. expectations and mm. you think, well, I'm not going to go in anywhere and fight. I can't. So I have to manage, I have to create my own utopia, if that makes mm. sense. So it's not easy because you have to keep thinking about how things are moving forward in your own life, what you have, what you have not. And look, everybody needs to get paid. So put yourself in a leadership uh, position and there is a lot of talk at the moment. It, it, it's men's mental health week. Yeah. Uh, so th there's, there's a few scenarios uh, knocking around and, and stuff on podcasts and this, that, and the other um, about giving people with mental health issues a chance in the business world. And 
I'll give you a scenario, say, brother. You know, you know that someone is very good at their job, but they can't cope with certain situations, i.e. they are limited in their uh, skill set because of their mental health. Now, would you, as an employer, give this person a chance, knowing full well that person number two would tick every box and there wouldn't be that problem? Do you, do you see what I'm, where I get I'm what you're from? saying? I mean, it, for me, it depends on what this person's bringing to the table. Because if you've got one person who's got a very rounded set of skills, and then you've got somebody who might have, let's say, this guy ticks five and this guy only mm. ticks one, then it depends on what this one thing is. But not only that, you know. There must be discrimination in that in that area, surely. Well, yeah, it's, in, it's, a, in a real world. Well, it's about leveling up. But I think when I say leveling up, I think what you've got to do is you've got to understand other people, because it's you have to understand how you can help to develop this person from being a one to a four. You know, because that in itself is gonna help to solve their mental issues, their mental health issues. You know. What people don't realise is is that, you know, there are people out there who actually want to become better, to develop better. They just don't know how to. And I think it's it's a case of, well, how can we create a, a, a system, an algorithm or whatever it is that is going to give this person the opportunity to develop? Because that might be the only thing that they want. And mental health, I think, can be frustration can be frustration because you might have wants but you know that you can't get there and and that's where you know in my situation when I came back from Norway and I'd had two good seasons out there as a manager and I was looking at jobs and I couldn't nobody it was like the door was shut and it was that that could have quite easily turned into something else for me but I've made a decision that, you know, I've had a good career. Um, yes, I would like to get into that room. Yes, I would like to even sit on a board or be in a, in a director of football situation. But it's not going to happen. So how am I going to manage myself so that I don't have issues? And it's not been easy because there is a certain level of frustration that you see. You put yourself in scenarios um, you know, and, and everybody wants that chance. I think that, you know, like I said, the, the biggest thing for me is what is I've seen in communities frustration because nobody's willing to give people a chance. Um, and I think that it's a very selfish mindset at times that we have or people have who are the haves. You know, they're not willing to look at what they have not so got. They're not willing to back themselves enough. And that was one of the questions that I put to the, um, when I did the uh, workshops with the C-suite, I says, back yourself. You know, uh, you know how, how am I gonna cope with competition? Because competition's healthy. Competition is where we evolve as human beings. We can't, we can't get better unless there is a certain level of, you know, the fittest and the strongest survive. But 
are we are we prepared to level up to make sure that that level of competition is fair for everybody, mm. regardless of colour of skin, religion, um, and and that's like I said, that's where some of the some of the frustrations are. What we what we tend to forget as well is, and this is something that I thought about a lot is that the system has been set up institutionally over a number of years. So it won't cater for certain people. Yeah. It it will it will cater for certain people to succeed. And just my opinion, and it might, you know I think if if you're going down a certain line, mm. um, I'd just like to back you with that if we're talking the same language. Yeah. Um, for example, golf clubs. Now, you know, Brian, I'm Jewish. Yep. You're black. <laughs> and I'm not going to yeah. I'm not going to sort of Let's men- forget golf. <laughs> I'm not going to mention any names in particular of golf clubs or situations, but I can tell you, talking about the establishment, yeah. it is frightening and only people like us know. Yeah. And there is so much it's, or has been it's, um, yeah. uh, negativity yeah. and racism in that subject, but it, it's down to the institution it's historically. Sta- am I right? It's staggering. Um, but you know what? I get a pass there because I'm Brian Dean. So people will be happy to have me in the room. You're all right. <laughs> you get what I mean? So I, I totally get what you're saying and I know what you're talking about. And I'm I'm staggered as a black person because... For me, you're a white person. I don't look at you as Jewish. I think that you're black, you're white. I don't think that there are any issues, but I know that. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like, I can't believe that there is there are, have been these issues, especially with the one that you're talking about. I'm absolutely staggered that that was allowed or people had the mindset, you know. Brian, I, I don't know if I've had this conversation um, and I used to know a couple of black guys that played golf many, many years ago, and I just can't believe, I'm not going into detail now, mm. what happened in a particular instance when there was a junior competition and how they were treated. Can and, imagine. And, you know, I mean, not only did they put ham sandwiches on for me, but they couldn't even get through the door. But it, it's it's there is something that is blocking development and something underlining that's for another story then i'll give you one i'll give you one <laughs> thing i'll give you a there's some people find this shocking what i'm gonna say but on that on the same lines mm-hmm. the guy who gave me my first opportunity in football is a very good friend he's suffering at the moment with um vascular dementia mm-hmm. and at that particular time there weren't a lot of black players, you know, I'm talking late 80s, or the, the the role of the black footballer was kind of like, okay, well, in their minds, or in, in the establishment's mind, it was, right, okay, stick them on the wing. You know what I mean? St- you know, big stock, you know, physicality, that's what they used to think about. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I remember I did a I did do a podcast and somebody asked me, it says, When did you make when did you get your first opportunity in football? And and the way how I phrased my answer made me ring him afterwards 
and say thank you because I might not necessarily have made it if it wasn't for you. And I, I, I really mean that from the heart. And he said, no worries, son. You know, they didn't want you to make it. He said, it's not your game. That's what he said. Mm. He said, they didn't want you in their game. So basically what he was saying was the game they wanted was they didn't want any changes. They didn't want anybody who potentially was better. It was just the fact that it was their game. And I was like, wow. I said, sometimes I've thought about certain things that happened when I was a kid, but I never believed that it was actually a thought process of individuals, you know, in the system. And, and it was like, what, really? And he was like, yeah, yeah. And he knew that because he's white and he'd obviously been there and seen it and spoken. And so you start to think, well, how many people have had an opportunity denied to better themselves? And, and so we're talking about mental health again, aren't we? Because people have had an opportunity denied when all they wanted was a chance. And why didn't these people back themselves against that opportunity? and look to develop themselves. Maybe they saw it as a threat. Uh, and so it's it's an exact parallel to what we're talking about with the golf, isn't it? Without a doubt. Yeah, sad. Let's finish on a nice positive note. Yeah, we don't want to depress anybody further. <laughs> than I uh, yeah, yeah. Let's, <laughs> let, let, let's do that smiling that you like. Yeah. Um, what should we talk about? <laughs> no, you know, you know what? Look, it's, it's been lovely talking yeah. to you, and you you are fascinating because you've got all your experience has a, a great deal of stories about all sorts of re interrelated subject matters. Mm. Um, it's fascinating, and um, it's so interesting that as I say, going back all those years. You were at school, I was at school, and we go our separate ways, and yeah. and, and it's incredible to come back and, and listen. I was thinking the other day, and I was I was on Instagram, and I was going to, I remember thinking that one of the things that happened to me when I was 16 was I used to go, and I used to collect glasses at Foxes. Mm -hmm. It was when I'd broken my leg, and I used to mm -hmm. see, sometimes I'd see some of the guys from school come in with their girlfriends, and I'd be collecting glasses, and... There were times where I think people, I used to think people thinking, blimey, is this what you're doing now? And, um, you know, so, so, so it was, it was one of those things where it was like, it wasn't humiliating, but that was the best apprenticeship I could have asked for. And the reason why I say that is because there I was, I had ambitions of being a footballer, I'd broken my leg, I'd come back, I'd put on my leg some of the times I was there. And here were people who were chatting up girls and you'd be trying to get glasses in between them and they'd be handing them to you, like, get out of my face. Or you'd get a girl who'd be like, oh, isn't it nice? A bit condescending. But whichever way you looked at it, you were beneath them. And, um, but you know what? It made me a very humble person and it made me respect everybody. And I'm so glad that I have that attitude because even though you can say that I've done this and I've done that, 
I, I'm I, all I want to see is happy faces. And sometimes I do look miserable, but I'm not. And sometimes you it's... You do, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but it also, it's also sometimes it, it might be just that somebody smiles and it, yeah. it breaks. And, and, and these are small things. Sometimes people just want an opportunity to be happy or to communicate. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I, I try now to absolutely um, enjoy myself, enjoy people. But I'm also quite a shy person. Mm. Well, you've not been shy today. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. It was a pleasure sort of coming back into your life, as it were, and reconnecting. And uh, Brian, thank you very much. It's a pleasure, Richard. <laughs>